I've been everywhere. Feels thanks. Last few weeks was away. Last week in where was I last week? Oh, it was the men's retreat. Oh, we had a great time hanging out with the guys out at uh, Camp Squia, which is about twenty miles north of Hope. Fantastic, fantastic time together as brothers. And uh, and then uh, this since then we've been at the Vineyard Pastors Retreat in Princeton uh, this week. And uh, it was kind of a farewell for Gary and Joy Best, who have resigned from the, or retired from the National Directorship of the Vineyard. And we, Kathleen and I, were commissioned for the BC side of of resuming that that role. Then the week before that, we were at Epic at Blue Porch in Calgary, which was a kind of a gathering of experimental church planters, people that are uh, trying church in different ways in order to more effectively put themselves in proximity with the lost. And, and that was just a wonderful time in the city center of Calgary. Uh, had a wonderful connection with our son and, and with sons in the faith, with people that were formerly in our youth group that are planting churches and leading churches in Calgary. But uh, I don't do well with traveling, so I'm very, very glad to be landed and to be back and, and to be home. And I do miss you. And I, I listened to Wade's sermon two weeks ago, fantastic, as he talked about the cost of discipleship in our culture, what that will look like. Um, and then um, last week, I didn't hear Dean's yet, but I heard that it was just a wonderful, wonderful message. And today I want to talk about something that often isn't connected to discipleship, and that is the sacraments. And even the choice of words that I'm using is, is maybe a little strange, being a Protestant. But I will, I'll explain that in a, in a, in a minute. Um, Sacrament is, is, is kind of a catch-all phrase that um, the church has traditionally used to describe what we would call sacred acts of commitment uh, as, as, as we're commanded by Jesus. The most common ones that we're familiar with is communion and the other one is water baptism. Now the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholic Church also recognize other what they would call sacraments. That would be a marriage, uh, or ordination, last rites, uh, penance. Uh, did I forget? There's one other one I think I forgot. Confirmation, right. And I, and I would say that, that we would agree with that. It's just that these two sacraments across the church board we recognize are at the heart of the community. Water baptism and, and, uh, and communion. Now the word sacrament comes from the Greek word sacramentum, which lit- or sorry, Latin word, not Greek, Latin word sacramentum, which means uh, literally an oath of fidelity. And it was used by the Latin culture before the church came along. The church kind of co-opted it. They baptized the word, as, as it were. Because what it meant was an oath of fidelity that a Roman soldier would make to his commander-in-chief when he, enlist- he or she enlisted, usually it was men back then, enlisted uh, in the army. So it was an oath of fidelity to the commander when they enlisted. But it also meant bond money. It was, it was, uh, uh, that was deposited in a temple when there was a, a pending settlement of a legal dispute. So on one hand, it was a sacred commitment. On the other hand, it was a sacred object. And in church history, the Protestants have tended to err to the side of the sacred commitment part. 
And the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox, it's more the sacred object part. But I think there's room for both. I think they both speak to us. And my hope today is that we can come to a richer understanding of the role of the sacraments in this quest that we have to make disciples and to be disciples as followers of Jesus. So let's look again at our text that we started with a couple of weeks ago. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So right in his commission to make disciples, Jesus includes a sacrament, which was baptism. And he, by explicitly he refers to baptism, and he implies communion in this passage too. Why? Because he said, teach him to do everything I commanded you. And what was one of the things he commanded us to do? It was communion. Like, we'll talk about that, look at some scriptures in a minute. But baptism was a sacrament of fidelity. If, if you use the marriage analogy, and excuse my, you know, this is kind of tender and sacred, but I, I hope you understand my heart in this. But in marriage, baptism would be like the marriage vows at the ceremony. Communion would be like a couple making love after they've made that covenant as a renewal of the covenant that they've made. That's what making love is. God created sexuality so that a man and a woman would renew their sacred vows by giving themselves to each other. And it was a physical expression. That's why promiscuity is such an idiotic thing. It's just so against the, what, what God created sexuality for. Because a, a man and a woman give themselves to each other. There's complete abandonment and it's a picture of their life and the, cov- and the covenant that they have made. Right? So communion is like that. It's like that renewal of the covenant that we made with God. G- Baptism is like our marriage that we, we, we made to God. And so we talked about how that baptism is literally into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or when, when it says in the name of, back in those days, the name was the same as the actual thing. So when Jesus said baptize into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're literally baptized into the Trinity. That's what happens. You and I become part of the Trinity. Some of you have been trying your whole life to do that. No, seriously. I mean, that is what, that's what happens is we become part of the very, very, of God Himself together when we're baptized. And our primary identity is Jesus. Not our ethnic roots. Not our religious roots, not vineyard, not Ukrainian, not French, not Pentecostal. My first family loyalty is the family of God through Christ. That we have been made part uh, of something that transcends all our differences. Isn't that beautiful? And that is the beauty of the body of Christ. That doesn't mean we lose those things. Those are important. Cultural and ethnic diversity is beautiful. God created that. But it's secondary to the fact that we are one in Christ. Right? So that's what water baptism does. Is it declares our allegiance and our loyalty to Jesus. So how did the early church obey this? In our text, Acts chapter 2, it says, those who accepted... Peter just preaches humdinger of a sermon... 
that most of us preachers can only be jealous over. And thousands of people come to Christ in one altar call. 3,000 people come to Christ. And they go, what must we do? You know, what do we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So verse 41 says, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number daily. That day, sorry. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many signs and wonders performed by the apostles. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on to say, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to everyone who had need. Now, let me just quickly explain that because some people think that we should always do what they did there. Let me just explain something. There were people from all over the world that were visiting on the day of Pentecost and many of the disciples who became Christians there lived in other parts of the world. And the disciples, the apostles said, you can't go yet. We need to teach you about Jesus. So people opened up their homes. They opened up couches, floor space. And, and, and they took a big offering so that they could go into an immediate discipleship program. In fact, I think the church in Rome started because of these disciples. They, they were discipled here in, in Jerusalem. And, and uh, it wasn't even one of the apostles. It seems that was one of the church planners that just these ordinary believers went back to Rome and started talking the gospel. And, and the great church in Rome was started because of ordinary believers. Isn't that amazing? But it was because the church was willing to disciple them. How did they do it? Well, they took care of their practical needs. We read about that in our reading today. And verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. This would be like the temple, this setting here. And then they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor of all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Now it's important to understand who, who was this written by? Who wrote this passage? Who's the author? Luke, right? In fact, Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke, it seems made Luke and Acts one book originally. They've been split up, but originally it was called Luke-Acts. Now it's important because I'm going to go to Luke. Uh, uh, there's a backdrop to this breaking of bread that's very important to Luke, the author, as he's writing about this. And the backdrop is a story that Luke himself recorded in the Emmaus Road. Now, maybe I'm just, I don't want to give anything away yet. This has got to surprise you, so hang on there. Um, Luke wrote about this story where these two guys, they're not that well-known disciples of Jesus, on the day of the resurrection are going for a walk to a place called Emmaus. It's not very far from Jerusalem. And there's rumors that Jesus is alive, but a lot of people haven't seen him yet. And so they're walking down the road and they're really perplexed and they're down and Jesus sidles up alongside of them and they don't recognize him. And he goes, what's up? Right? And they go, what do you mean, what's up? Don't you, haven't you heard what's going on? You know, the, we, Jesus, powerful in deed and word. You know, we thought, we had so hoped that he would be the Messiah. Have you ever felt that in your walk with God? I had hoped this would happen. And it didn't. My hopes were dashed. And, and they're discouraged. And Jesus says, oh, you slow to believe, you, you hard-headed, don't you? 
And he starts to talk to them about the, the, the scriptures that prophesied that the Messiah would be killed and then rise again the third day. And they get to the place in Emmaus and they invite Jesus in and say, hey, don't go yet. We, we like this. Come and talk to us. They don't know it's him yet. But they go into the house and sit down. And then this happens. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. So I'm going to say this several times today. He took, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it. Four things. He took, he gave thanks, he broke, and he gave it. And so what happened? Then their eyes were open and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? But Luke doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and he has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And foundational to the early church's understanding of the significance of breaking of bread was Jesus had told them, Behold, I'm with you always. He just said that in the Great Commission. The problem is, how many know Jesus is with us always? He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. But how many know sometimes it's hard to recognize Him with what you're going through? It's hard to see him. And, and the church understood that this was a way to have your eyes open afresh to the reality that Christ is with you. Christ is with you. Right? So that's very important. Now, this particular incidence has the backdrop of the Last Supper, which you will remember was the Passover meal. Now, the Passover meal, remember, was Israel's remembering, remembering what God had done for them by, uh, by bringing them safely out of Egypt from slavery and, and setting them free. And, and they had an amnesia problem, spiritual amnesia problem. They kept forgetting what God had done and, and, and it caused bad things. I mean, bad things happen when you forget what God has done. So God gave them a reminder, the Passover meal, so that every year when they had the Passover and they ate the lamb and the, and the bitter herbs and their children would say, Daddy, why are we doing this? And usually the child was put up to saying it. Then the father would say, well, I'm glad you asked. And so then they'd tell the story of the Passover, right? And it's in that context that Jesus takes bread on the, in the, the Last Supper before he's to die. And Paul, by revelation, receives this story. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Remember what Simon was saying a little bit earlier about Josiah. This is my body, which is for you. Some of you need to hear me say this right now. He's for you. He's for you. He's for you. He was given for you. God the Father gave His Son for you. He who spared not His only Son, but freely gave Him up for us all. How shall He not freely with Him give us all things? Hello? He's for you. 
Sorry, I just had to camp on that for a minute. The Lord Jesus... Uh, uh, then he says, do this in remembrance. Don't get in the same problem the people of God got into in the Old Testament. Don't be forgetters. Don't be amnesiacs. Remember. Then, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the New Testament or New Covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance. Now there's that word again, memory. See, we're a community of memory. We're a community of hope. We're a community that remembers that we're part of a story that began a long time before we began. We have entered into that story, and that story has an ending where the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and His Christ. Where the, the, prayer, the Lord's prayer will be answered. May your kingdom come and your will be done, which we pray for every day. That prayer will be answered and we will be like Him and sin and sorrow and crying and death and sickness will be gone and the former things will be passed away and all things will become new. That's the future we have. The past is the story of God and the future and the past through communion combine to meet us in the present. As we celebrate this story that we are in, remember me, Jesus said. Remember, we're community. Now there's another backdrop I want to give to communion that is evident in the Scriptures. You see this. Now it's not evident so much in the Matthew, Mark, Luke stories, but you see it in John, the connection between the feeding of the 5,000 and communion. And uh, some of you that know those passages will know what I'm talking about. But it's the story where, remember Jesus had fed the 5,000? And uh, let's look at Matthew's version of it. When Jesus had landed, he saw a large crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Has, ever, has the Lord ever asked you to do something that made you mad? Because usually he'll ask you to do something you can't do. Right? So, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered him. That's all we got. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm like that. All we got is five loaves and two fish. What can we do with that? That's what Nathaniel said, I think, in, in John. What, what's that going to do? He got out of his calculator and said, we need 200 days wages of food to even start feeding these people, give them their hors d'oeuvres. Right? Bring them here to me, Jesus said. And he said, verse 18, verse 19, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Okay, are you following me? Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and gave thanks, and he broke the loaves and he gave them. There it is again. He took, he gave thanks, he broke. And he gave. Now, what you're, the reason why I keep repeating that is you're getting the syllabus of discipleship. That is the, that is the you know, when you get a course outline for a course you're going to take, you guys that are teachers, you know this. You, you want to give the students a sense of where they're going, right? And the syllabus is kind of an outline, and you anchor the material around that. And what, what you're seeing in this, this, this is why communion is so important for discipleship. It's because you're getting the discipleship training course of Jesus in the syllabus, taking, uh, 
giving thanks, breaking, and giving. Well, in the story in John, uh, Jesus walks on water, and he, he does it in the other books too, but, but the people chase him down. Okay, so after this, they're so excited about this, they want to make him king. So he runs away, he goes up in a mountain and prays. The disciples go out on the water for a, a sail to the other side. And you remember the water got kind of rough. So Jesus comes out in the middle of the night walking on the water, right? And then that whole story happens. He gets on the boat. He brings them safely to Capernaum. This crowd, which was kind of on the north um, eastern side of Galilee, uh, found Jesus back on the western side of Galilee in Capernaum. And they said, Hey, where did you go? And... Uh, they said, you know, that was, that was pretty cool. Uh, can you give us another sign? We think you might be the Messiah. And then they, then they went on to say, you know, Moses gave a sign. He, he brought manna from heaven. So then Jesus said, well, well God's even done something better than that because that manna from heaven, they ate and they died still. But, but God has given you some living bread that if you eat that bread, you'll never die. Oh, we want that bread. And then he said, then he really, he started getting them you know, he said, well, I am the bread of life. He, whoever eats of me will never die, will never hunger, will never thirst. Whoever drinks of me will never thirst. He starts using this language. Well, it, it, they kind of have this conversation and they start to get offended, basically, because, and it kind of comes to a head when he says this. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Because he says, my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. So he starts talking like this and they get really offended. Verse 53, Jesus said to them, Verily, truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. It got really quiet. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Now listen, disciples. You want to be disciples? You want to make disciples? You got to be a disciple. This is how you are a disciple. And this is how you can make disciples. Are you ready? Just, verse 57, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in this synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples... Now, now it's not only the Jewish leaders that are grumbling. Now it's Jesus' own disciples. They're having trouble with his language. They were ready for this powerful king that was going to whip the Romans and take over Jerusalem and, and, and they were into success and power and let's, let's kick their butts, right? And so he says to them, does this offend you? Verse 62, then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words that I've spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray Him. 
He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered, Lord, I'm really confused by your sermon today. But to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. So we see that communion is, is, is a transition from a consumeristic Christianity to a Christianity where you're for others. Where, where, where God takes you from being a person who sees church as something that meets your needs to where you become part of a body that's broken and given for the world. And at that point, a lot of disciples said, no way. No way. That's not what I signed up for. Right? And uh, they didn't want to follow a humble king, a servant God, a suffering God, who would end his life in apparent failure. Right? He ended his life in apparent failure. Most of his followers had abandoned him. He died alone, naked, before a hostile mob. Is that our idea of success? And so... There are four essentials for discipleship that I believe communion leaves us with. And the first is, and I'm actually referring to the communion, but I'm also referring to the Emmaus Road, and I'm also referring, if you can see the layers, I'm also referring to the feeding of the 5,000 because they're all overlapping here. The first thing in discipleship is he took what was given to him. There's something about God that has to have raw material. He will not work with nothing. He did in the beginning, but ever since then, since he involved us in the partnership, he will not move. He needs raw material. He blesses financially when we sow generously. He blesses our lives when we make them available to him. And he makes us fruitful. I have been around long enough to know that God isn't looking for ability. He's looking for availability. I've seen availability go way farther in the kingdom of God than ability over and over and over again. Jesus takes what is made available. And so he looked at the crowd and they had a big, big hunger problem. And he said, well, what do you have? And they said, well, we have five loaves and two fishes. And he kind of smirked and said, well, I can work with that. <laughs> right? Nah, I don't know if he did that. But, but I think something in the heart of God said, I can work with that. Maybe all you feel you've got is the five loaves and two fish. That's, what, that's all you have to offer. And the needs in Vancouver are so great. And we go, oh God, where are resources as a church? God just says, I, I'm not worried about that. He's saying, what have you got? Right? What have you got? It's availability. I, I, I look at that chili wagon that's been there for how many years now, Shannon? Almost the same amount of time as Lower Post. I think around the same time. 17, 18, 19? Yeah. And just, just how God has multiplied through that. Just, just by being available, making ourselves available. It is my belief that the very texture of the drive, because I moved here in 91 and have lived within walking distance, it is my belief that the very texture spiritually, the climate of commercial drive has changed. And Chili Wagon is one of the big reasons for it. 
Chili wagon, just, just, it's, there's just a favor. Chili wagon, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Just that, that but, but it expresses the generosity in the heart of God. And a hand of friendship, because it's about relationship. You know? And, and there isn't anything in my life, I should say this, that I, I don't want to go to more when I go, and I'm never more glad that I went after. It's, it's, that contrast happens every time for me. Because you get out of your comfort zone and, you know, and, you know, give up Battlestar Galactica and a few other things. <laughs> so that's the first thing. Then the second thing, it says he gave thanks. Now notice that Jesus didn't take the bread and the, and the fish and go, is this all you got? Is this all there is? He gave thanks. He gave thanks. The core language of the kingdom is gratitude. Not looking at what you don't have, but what you have. I just, I, 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 I'm, I, I, it was 1988, January. I didn't believe I was going to see my 31st birthday. I was 30 years old. My 31st birthday was in June. It was January. I didn't think I was going to live till June. I believed I was lost. I'd suffered of a severe nervous, phys- physical, emotional breakdown that would incapacitate me to not only that I couldn't minister again, but that I could never be a husband or a father again. And so, for me, here I am, 24 years later, well, off medication, happy father, husband, grandpa who's waiting for the fourth one any second now. Yeah. We just, we, we're, we, we, got, we got our message text all looking there, we're, all, we're just on our eggshells, right? It's, it's just all gravy for me, it's all gravy. I just go... I just can't believe the mercy and the grace of God. And, and that's, you know, and, and sometimes we forget that, don't we? But I, I got together with the, the, the men last week and there, there were six guys got together. And these guys, we had a night, we took four hours from 7 o'clock to 11 o'clock on, on Saturday night. And all we did is we listened to God and prayed for each other. And I can't describe to you the kind of encouragement that came to me through those guys. First of all, because sometimes, you know, you struggle and you, 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 know, you, you know, and I travel a lot and I see different things and there's lots of big and wealth and power and numbers and all this crap, right? <laughs> that we still get seduced by and we lose sight of the kingdom values. And these guys just, I mean, they prayed for each other, but they prayed for me. They poured into me. And they, and they left me believing that they, they honestly believe this is the greatest church in the whole world. This is the greatest thing they've ever found. And they actually told me that I had something to do with it. I mean, I just, I just, I just walked out of that. I, just, I was overwhelmed, Scott. I, just, I was overwhelmed by the encouragement of God. But you see, that's the language of the kingdom where God says, this is what you have. I can do something with this. And you watch what I love to do with this. You watch. The third thing, oh, I got to tell you a quick John Wimber story because 
Uh, Gary Best, who retired this week, told us a John Wimber story. And he, he was one of these guys who got to hang around John Wimber uh, near the end of his life. And John Wimber was known as this great conference speaker, planted lots of churches, was very successful. But very few people realize that before the end of his life, before he died, people thought he'd lost it. And there was these people put on a conference for him, and they had this massive auditorium that would seat hundreds, maybe even thousands. And guess how many people showed up? Forty. And you know, it's kind of demoralizing. You know, I'd rather have like a building that seats 50, and you're packed, and there's that feeling of revival, than have a building that seats 2,000, and you have 50. That sucks, right? It's just, it just it's so demoralizing, right? Gary Best said he watched Wimber as his 40 people gathered and he poured himself into them. He prayed, he spoke, he ministered as if there were thousands. It's that heart of gratitude that says, I've stumbled onto something that is so amazing. Do you know what we stumbled on? Do you realize what we stumbled on? You know, I look back over my, 20, my 10 years in Calgary and I go, oh my God, when I was in the middle of that, I thought it was a bunch of snotty youth kids that were brats, you know, and I was trying to hang on to a babysitting club until I grew up or something, you know. And, and now I look back and I see God. I see God's fingerprints all over. I go, whoa, this is incredible. So don't lose that. Thirdly, it says he broke the bread. This is... My body, which is broken for you. And it tells us two things. Number one, there's two kinds of brokenness. There's a brokenness that you have no control over. Tragedy. Somebody abused you. Somebody sexually violated you. Uh, life just takes its toll. I just finished reading the book of Job. Job's my hero. I love Job. He's my guy. He is my guy. And yeah, Job is the guy. It's funny how God never explains to him why it all happened. Isn't that amazing? He never does give him a theological explanation. But stuff happens, right? And so there's something that God promises that no matter whether it's a brokenness that, that you had no control over or whether it's a brokenness that you did have control, maybe it's your sin, your failure. God says, bring it to me. And it doesn't matter what brokenness you're experiencing, my blood, I was the whole one. I was the complete one. I was broken for you so that you could be made whole. There is nothing the enemy has done to you that anyone has done to you that can rob you of my destiny and my life being poured through you. I will restore what was lost. I will restore all that was lost. That's the good news. And then there's the willing brokenness. There's the brokenness where we offer ourselves as Jesus did as His followers in sacrificial love that unless a corn of wheat falls in the ground and dies. You see this loaf? It's a beautiful loaf. Isn't it a beautiful loaf? And we can all sit around and that loaf could be me, could be you, it could be our church. It's a beautiful loaf. But how many know it's not going to do much until it's broken so that it can be given? And that's the message of the Gospel. He took it and He broke it. He takes you and me and we offer ourselves and we say, Lord, I'm available. And then He breaks us and we go, God, that hurts. But He says, you prayed. You asked to be given. 
you ask to be given away. And as a church, I think it's true. I think of, of, of Marcus and Dee when they were with us last, through the early part of the millennium, and we had our first grandchild that lived a few blocks away. And I remember the day that they announced to us that the Lord was telling them to move on to Zurich. And I remember driving out across the Burrard Bridge and I was so mad at God. I said, You're, you, this, this city is so hard. It's so hard to build family here. It's so hard to be a community here. Now you're taking away my own family. I was so mad at God. Because ultimately, he, he was... And all of a sudden, some of you have heard this story before. All of a sudden, I heard the words, Will you give? Will you give them? And instead of God taking them, He was asking me. And as soon as He said that, I went, Wait a minute. (laughs) I know that line. I can't outgive this one. I can't outgive God. Abraham giving Isaac, and God said, In blessing I will bless you, in multiplying I will bless you. So that I, I, was, I was, see, what brokenness does is you, you move from God just taking stuff from you to where God says, Will you give? Will you give what I've made available? Will you give it? Because there's more where that came from. There's more where that came from. And I remember this week we were up at a vineyard pastors retreat in Princeton, and the, it's a it's a it's a young life camp, and they had these massive big pans full of pierogies and pancakes, and they'd bring them out, and halfway down the line they were running out, and it was so tempting to grab the last one before Pastor So and So got it, because boy I've seen him eat and he's had enough, right? But just about as the last one was about to run out. All of a sudden, one of the, the young lifers would come out from the kitchen and they have this massive pan full of new pierogies. And I thought, that's the kingdom. There's more where this came from. There's more. See, you can give it away. But you see, in the kingdom, the way that you, you access the more is you, you give. You give. You can't outgive God. You can't. Broken. So given. Multiplication happens when we give. So, so I look and I see John and Beth Stovell. She's teaching university and theology in a university in Florida. I look at Ben Woodman, who's a youth leader in the Lower Mainland now, who used to be a hormone-packed kid in our youth group that I didn't know what to do with, right here in Eastside. I look at Patrick and Jody, Marcus and Dee in Switzerland, Sarah and Paul, Mark, Dixie and Art, Greg and Di who planted in Sydney Southwest, Joe, Joe, uh, Wade and Joe who might end up in Thailand in the near future, and John and Jeannie who are going to be moving on in about a month's time. And it, it hurts, but... Rather than them being taken, I say, Lord, yes. Yes. Because I can't, we can't outgive you. We can't outgive you. 
So I'm going to invite uh, Scott and Kathleen forward, and we're going to we're going to receive communion.